amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. This is Alex, and welcome to Barely Braided, where we're taking a deep, deep dive into foster care, adoption, and all things parenting, even the sticky stuff. Welcome. It is episode 30, which is kind of a milestone over here. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Hallie Riggs. She is a licensed independent clinical social worker with a concentration in childhood trauma and recovery. She is the clinical director of the Simply Smiles Children's Village, which is a first-of-its-kind intentional community for Lakota children on the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation in South Dakota, which is obviously very close to my heart, as most of you know that I was born and raised in eastern South Dakota. For the past decade, Hallie's social work experience has centered on fostering resilience in the presence of childhood trauma. She's worked closely with children, both nationally and abroad, who face tremendous adversity, abuse, neglect, family separation, poverty, violence, addiction, grief, and hopelessness. These same children have repeatedly demonstrated the impact that one caring connection with a safe adult can have on them, proving that when children feel safe and loved, they thrive. This truth continues to motivate her clinical practice. Hey, Hallie, I'm glad to have you here. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, and thank you for bearing with me on all of these scheduling things and tech things. Not my day today. No worries at all. You've been so kind and patient with me, so I'm very appreciative of that. Um, I'm wondering, we have a really bad snowstorm in Tennessee right now. What is it looking like in South Dakota? So South Dakota is quite cold. It, you know, it's funny, I'm from the East Coast, and so I'm, I'm certainly not a stranger to typical winter weather, but South Dakota winters are a different thing entirely. So we've been in the negative temperatures for about a week now, and so staying inside and, and staying warm. Oh my goodness. Do you have snow? We do have snow, um, but just a little bit. And I think it's, you know, the winds here are so intense that often it's a lot of like snow drifts and nothing that stays put for too long. Um, But it is snowy outside. It's actually very, very pretty on the prairie. Yes. Yeah, it definitely is. That's kind of one of the things that I noticed when I moved away from South Dakota. Growing up there, lots of wind kind of year round was just a normal thing. And I didn't realize that it wasn't like that everywhere until after I left. Right, right. Super weird. Um, Okay, well, cool. So you said you're originally from the East Coast. What part? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Massachusetts. Okay. Um, So South Dakota is new-ish to me. I first came out here in 2016 during the wintertime. So a very quick introduction to the weather extremes. But I've been coming back and forth for the last several years and then moved to South Dakota officially this past August. Okay. Was it your job that brought you to South Dakota permanently? Yeah, it was. Okay. Well, what led you to that position? Were you working kind of in that realm before that? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I I've been working in the social work field for about ten years, and you know worked in Massachusetts and Rhode Island for the majority of my career, and I've always been really interested in doing child trauma work and specifically um, working to understand and better support the connections for kids that that often result in them being able to overcome adverse experiences. And so that was a lot of the work that I was doing in hospital settings and in clinics in Massachusetts and in Rhode Island. And then I found out about an opportunity to volunteer with an organization called Simply Smiles. And so I thought, why not? I, I took a week, I came to South Dakota and, and my life changed in a lot of ways because of that trip. I not only fell in love with the work that Simply Smiles was doing, um, but I also met my partner who has been a longtime Simply Smiles employee. And so, you know, I eventually moved to Connecticut, which is where Simply Smiles headquarters uh, is located. And while I was there, I did a lot of grief and bereavement work with children. And it wasn't until um, the last couple of years that I, you know, began talking with Simply Smiles really seriously about their idea to start a children's village on on the Cheyenne River Reservation. And I just jumped at the opportunity to be all in and to dedicate myself to this project full time. So my partner and I, we were initially supposed to be out here earlier, but because of the pandemic, our, our trip was delayed. And, you know, for really good reason, making sure that um, the reservation was secure and that everyone here was safe, you know, with, with COVID you know, protocol and precautions. And so we were able to finally come out here in August. And so we have been here on the ground ever since. All right. So I guess I didn't initially realize that Simply Smiles was headquartered in Connecticut. Do they have other locations where they do like other work or similar work throughout the country? Yeah. So Simply Smiles is, you know, our headquarters is in Connecticut. That's where our largest support network and donor network is based. Uh, But our work initiated actually long before I came along in Oaxaca, Mexico. So our president and founder was working in, in Oaxaca, Mexico, fell in love with the work and really dedicated himself to supporting um, indigenous communities in Oaxaca, first with, you know, community initiatives and wellness initiatives like um, food distribution and eradicating parasitic infection. And, you know, eventually the work evolved to become solely focusing on child welfare. And uh, a children's village was created, um, the first Simply Smiles children's home in Oaxaca, Mexico. And a few years into the work, uh, a friend of the organization who is a member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe said, you know, the work that you're doing in Oaxaca, Mexico sounds like it would be really valuable in South Dakota on the reservation where I'm from. And so Brian, our our founder, came out to South Dakota and, you know, with the rest of the team that was involved at the time and many dedicated volunteers, um, started to build community partnerships with folks on the ground here, with tribal members and with children and families and elders, and just really, you know, building trust with the community and talking to community members about what, you know, what are the ways that 
our organization could be most helpful and supportive. And so, you know, again, that work began with really grassroots community initiatives, summer camp and community meals and home building. But eventually what we came to understand from our community partners here is that one of the most underserved um, and greatest needs on the reservation, and I think throughout Indian country, is that of child welfare and upholding the Indian Child Welfare Act. And so that was why we decided to transition our focus on the reservation to building and cultivating this uh, children's village here. So we have our children's village in Oaxaca, Mexico, our children's village on the Cheyenne River Reservation, and then our headquarters back in Connecticut. So we're kind of, we're kind of all over. Super cool. Okay, so you mentioned the Indian Child Welfare Act. I know that's an acronym that we hear quite often in foster care as ICWA. Can you tell us more about that and how it impacts foster children? Yeah, absolutely. So the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was created in you know 1978, was really a response to a congressional investigation that concluded that American Indian children residing in the United States had been unjustly removed from their homes in the past. And so ICWA, or the Indian Child Welfare Act, sought to create standards within the child welfare system that would really ensure the prioritization of Indigenous children in foster care being placed with Native you know, family, friends, members of their community, keeping Native children with, with their kin and community, keeping them somewhere where they could continue to maintain contact with relatives and maintain a connection to their culture. And so that's really the purpose of ICWA, of the Indian Child Welfare Act. And the problem is that, you know, in short, what ICWA promises on paper most states are not able to fulfill in practice. And so, you know, I can tell you that in South Dakota alone, and and by the way, Alex, this continues to be such an education for me because, you know, being a non-Native person, being not from South Dakota, I've had a ton of learning to get up to speed on and, and will always have learning. Um, but one of the, the things that struck me initially that I learned when I first came out here is that Native children are significantly disproportionately represented in the child welfare system in South Dakota. So Native American children only make up 13% of the child population here in South Dakota, but they account for almost 70, 70, almost 70% of children in foster care in the state. So that's really overwhelming when you think about those numbers. And so the problem is that A, you know, Native children are so disproportionately represented, overrepresented in child welfare systems. But, you know, then that there are not enough Native foster care placements and there's not enough emphasis and funding and support, quite frankly, to ensure that those foster homes exist. So the result is that Native American children, you know, when they are removed from their caregivers, because of significant instances of abuse or neglect, they are often placed off of the reservations. They're often placed, you know, maybe out of state with non-Native families. And that's really a problem that we don't have more resources that are Native-driven, Native-run to offer, and that we as a society don't support and advocate for those initiatives. And so that's why we created the the Children's Village, because we wanted there to be a place on Cheyenne River where Lakota children who are in care, in the care of 
you know, the child welfare system can remain with their kin and community and can remain connected to, you know, the land that is sacred to their families and their tribe and to the customs and cultures and practices that define who they are as Lakota people. Wow. I can see how the work is so important and so necessary. This is just kind of an offshoot question, um, but because I'm curious, do you know which terminology is most appropriate or maybe does it vary by person to person? And what I mean by that is Native American person Mm -hmm. uh, more appropriate? Indian? I've heard American Indian. Do you know? So I guess what I would say is I often hear people on the reservation and members of the community with whom I work speak to Native American children, American Indian children, Native children, but most often Lakota children. And so what I think is important um, for anyone who you know is non-Native, who is listening, um, that we should really be following the lead of our Native partners and really following their lead in terms of how they self-identify. And then I think you know the other really important piece is that all Native nations are different and their own sovereignty. And so, you know, I think it's important that we not generalize uh, Native American people because the Native American community is extremely diverse. And so, you know, to that point, many of my friends and colleagues where I work uh, identify themselves as Lakota people. I love that answer. And that's not an answer I expected, but it makes a lot of sense. I have asked the same question uh, to one of my previous guests, Kanisha from Tutus and Tennis Shoes, regarding, I asked her, is it more appropriate to say a Black person or an African-American person? And kind of based on her response, it was similar to yours. Follow their lead. Every you know person or group of people, they're going to have different preferences. And so kind of just um, figuring out what they prefer may be the best way to handle it. So thank you for that. Absolutely. So I know that, well, I don't know. I'm assuming that many of my listeners are not super familiar with reservations, how they work, their purpose. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I can speak in in really general terms. And again, I, I really encourage people to to do their own research, to educate themselves on, you know, this country's history, um, this place that we now call the United States of America, but a place that originally belonged to Native communities who prioritized above all else protecting the land, that the land is sacred, that all beings are related, and to approach to approach the world in that way. And you know, with colonization came non-Native people settling in what we now call the United States, claiming to have discovered what we now call the United States and dictating, you know, the participation that Native people could have. And so what resulted was the genocide of Native Americans, the colonization of Native Americans, and the uprooting and forced assimilation and movement of Native American people. And so reservations are basically the result of non-Native colonizers, you know, me as a non-Native person, my ancestors, claiming the land as their own and designating by force and brutality you know, where Native people could reside. And so those places became what we know as reservations. So a designated area of land where where Native people were forced to reside together. Um, And so, you know, this is a really, really 
important thing, I think, for us as non-Native people to challenge ourselves to talk about, um, to confront, and to, you know, on some level, take accountability for. Because, you know, while I was not present at that time and directly responsible for that colonization, I continue to benefit as a white person, as a non-Native person, from the systems that simultaneously continue to oppress Native American communities. Um, so the lack of resources on reservations, the lack of Native representation in government, the lack of support um, and really adequate support when it comes to Native schools and Native hospitals, the way we uh, misrepresent and really harmfully depict Native people in, in media. These are all things that as non-Native people we have to be aware of. And, and I think, um, you know, once we're aware of it, it's our responsibility to really advocate and educate one another. And so an important part of that is just understanding, you know, why reservations came to be. Yeah, that's all so interesting. I heard a story, and this may be a story for another episode or another podcast, but it had to do with the time period in which Mount Rushmore was being created in South Dakota and the land ownership at that time and um, kind of the monetary exchange or lack of monetary exchange for that land. It was very interesting. Are you familiar with that story at all? I'm not familiar with this story. I'm not. It's very interesting. And like I said, I'm not going to go into it today because it's kind of a long story. And I wanted, I, I don't know that I have all the facts solidified in my head. So before spewing it, but if anybody's interested, um, you can find some pretty interesting information on that. Do you know by chance how big the Cheyenne River Reservation is, like both geographically and by population? Yeah. So the Cheyenne River Reservation is roughly, coincidentally, um, about the size of uh, Connecticut. Oh. Um, yeah, so it's quite large. You know, I'm trying to recall the population. And I want to well, say, I don't want to misspeak, but I want to say that it's around 8,000, um, a little over 8,000 people. So if you think about, you know, 8,000 people, a reservation the size of Connecticut, the area we work on, um, which is a town called La Plante, is just a very, very small piece of Cheyenne River. Um, so the population in La Plante is about 170. And so, you know, I say that because even my experience on the Cheyenne River Reservation is very narrow in that I'm, I'm focusing specifically on working with this community in this area. Am I correct in assuming that there are other towns on the reservation as well? Or is there like one biggest city or mm -hmm. how does that work? Yeah. So Eagle Butte is, I believe, the biggest town on the Cheyenne River Reservation. And it's about a half an hour away from us. And so Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.
that's where, you know, we access everything from the grocery store to the Indian Health Services Hospital to, you know, the counseling center. Um, and that that's about a half an hour away. But, you know, while I'm here, just learning a lot from my friends here uh, about so many beautiful areas of, of the reservation and of South Dakota and the land here that I have yet to explore, which I'm really looking forward to. But yeah, I would say Eagle Butte is um, the town that we, we frequent most when we say heading into town, it means you know heading into Eagle Butte. But there are a lot of other communities on the reservation as well. I'm so shocked that geographically it is about the size of Connecticut. That's much bigger than I had expected. Yeah, yeah. I was actually surprised by that as well. So I believe the area is like a little bit over 4,000 square miles. And it covers almost all of two counties, that, um, so Dewey County and Zybeck County and South Dakota. So yeah, it is quite large. So interesting. So from your perspective, why is it important to preserve the culture for these Native American children? Um, you know, that's a great question. And I guess my my first response to that is because Native people have taught me how important it is. Um, wow. You know, so speaking to our community partners and speaking to our community elders, our grandmothers group, uh, and our Lakota friends and, and colleagues about, you know, the generational and historical trauma that has been carried through to present day that, you know, is exacerbated by, by present day trauma that centers around, you know, the many years of trying to dissolve and wipe out a culture of people and, and many cultures um, within the Native American community. You know, when we talk about child welfare, if you take the opportunity to educate yourself about traditional Native American child rearing practices and um, traditional Native American parenting, and specifically, uh, you know, I'm learning a lot about traditional ways of Lakota parenting. Children in the Lakota community have always been considered sacred beings, and they've been treated as such historically by, by Native people and communities raising children and teaching children the importance of you know, generosity and belonging and independence and mastery and, you know, just all of these really, really beautiful teachings and even, you know, discipline being so thoughtful and um, coming from a place of such respect. You know, these are the traditional Lakota traditions and teachings that were were wiped out by colonization. And what that looked like and how that manifested was the boarding school era and forced adoption and, you know, Native children being removed from their families because of racism and bias. And so because of this, the culture has been taken away. And we, I believe, as non-Native people, need to do everything we can to support um, that reclaiming because Native people have always known how to care for their children. Non-Native people have really ruptured that. And so there has to be repair. Um, and in that repair, we create the space for Native people to reclaim their teachings and their culture. That's such a great answer. And I think that also can relate to foster parents of any race who are 
parenting children of any race because a lot of times the children and the foster parents or adoptive parents are of differing races. And so this can apply to any of those. You know, it's it's so important to have that connection with the child's culture and help them to, you know, grow their knowledge and be immersed and and know people and know traditions and know how those cultures work just, you know, for for their own benefit. So I love that answer. And I also love the fact that it can apply to many different races. Can you tell us more about the Children's Village specifically? Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. So the Children's Village is a project that we have been conceptualizing and working on for the last couple of years on the ground here in South Dakota. But really, it's the last 17 years of you know, Simply Smile's work that has led us to this point. And so a lot of what we did working with indigenous communities in Mexico has informed our work here. So we began, um, again, by you know partnering with our community members here, talking about the vision and you know getting started on the ground in lockstep with our CRST partners in developing uh, what this sanctuary for children would look like on the reservation. So we are in the process right now of um, finishing our second of six homes. And so the homes are designed to be in a village, so in a cluster together, because the idea is really families raising children as a village. It's it's that old saying that it takes a village and it really does. And, and you know, the more I learn, the more I understand that that's really true to Lakota teachings, that elders are an integral part of kids learning and aunts and uncles and cousins and storytellers and medicine people and two-spirit people, you know, this community, you know, comes together to raise a child. And so we've created this village so that houses are next door to each other, so that Native parents, Native foster parents are raising kids in tandem together. Um, And so just aesthetically, what the village looks like is a circle of houses or land that will, you know, eventually be a circle of houses. Right now it's, it's two, and we're very excited that we're, you know, beginning site planning on our third, but it's houses that are connected with common space for things like therapeutic support, support and a really beautiful space for birth families to come and cook meals together uh, with their children and elders to come and read stories. Uh, And then each house has its own space for up to six children to be cared for. So when the village is complete and the six houses are are complete, we will have the capacity to be able to provide support to up to 36 children in our care. But I think what's really important is that we basically looked at all of the parts of foster care, you know, living in a family, having family support, having it not be an institutionalized setting. We looked at all of those pieces that we really love. And then we looked at all of the pieces that we know work in some of those residential placements, like making sure that the background infrastructure is really solid, making sure that we have relief care caregivers to call upon. And we kind of married the two and figured out what worked best for for this setting. Um, And so the result of that is, you know, children being raised by Native caregivers, by caregivers who understand the importance of culture if they are not Native, you know, within this larger community of CRST members and Lakota people. And so that's the vision for the village. And, um, you know, I'm really excited to see how it grows because, you know, I can tell you that we have spoken with other reservations, both in South Dakota and beyond, who have expressed an interest in this model um, and being able to apply it to their community. So my hope is that, you know, we only grow from here. 
but I feel tremendously honored to be able to start this first children's village in the U.S. on the Cheyenne River Reservation. Absolutely. What a great concept. Do you have any idea um, when you expect all six homes to be complete? So, you know, COVID, of course, impacted (laughs) our timeline, Um, you know, and everyone listening can relate to all of the ways in which COVID has, you know, impacted us. And, you know, I think for many people, the feeling was that things were have been so on hold. But, you know, the, the interesting piece to point out and, and you know, the really disheartening thing to point out is that the village is needed, period, but it's needed now more because of COVID. And I think that's a really important point to mention because, you know, when when COVID first started, you know, happening and we were becoming more aware and taking precautions, we all thought, you know, is this going to be on hold for a while? And what we learned from, you know, child welfare experts in the field and, you know, doing our own research is that the village is more needed because, because of the pandemic, because kids are more at risk, kids are more vulnerable, families are more stressed, resources are more scarce. And so now is the time to keep pushing, even though of course, COVID creates such a barrier. And so that said, you know, like I mentioned to you, us getting on the ground was delayed by, you know, half a year. So we've been really having to make up for lost time. And so in our pushing, we've been able to determine that we will, you know, hopefully have our third home up and running by the fall of this year. And so by the fall of this year, we will have three homes that are fully functioning. That's, you know, the ability to provide care for up to 18 children. And then we will we will take it from there. But, you know, I think another thing that's important to mention is that safety has to come first. And we have really been following the lead of the tribe here on Cheyenne River and following their lead in terms of what they feel is safe uh, with regards to the pandemic. You know, I want to say that the Cheyenne River Reservation specifically has done a really amazing job of keeping community members safe by things like having checkpoints to make sure that there could be contact tracing and not allowing volunteer groups to come to the reservation until things were safer and making sure that the vaccine is widely distributed and the elders are cared for. Um, So we really rely on our community partners to tell us when it's safe to continue our expansion. That makes sense. So in the children's village, how are the adults or the caregivers, are they recruited or are they hired or are they found? How does that work? Yeah. So I guess that's twofold, right? Because when I talked about sort of this uh, best of both worlds model with foster care, but then, you know, professional support, I guess first I'll speak to foster parenting. So foster parenting at the Children's Village is really professionalized caregiving. And what I mean by that is when you come to to provide foster care at the Children's Village, that is your sole focus. And we've done a lot of things and provided a lot of resources to our parents to remove any barriers that get in the way of being able to be a fully present parent. And the reason why this is so important is because, you know, every child deserves that, but also because we are a therapeutic foster placement agency. And so the kids who are coming into our care have experienced tremendous trauma, tremendous adversity. And I would I would just say that any child who is engaged in or involved with child welfare systems has experienced trauma because separation from family is is traumatic, you know, and based on a lot of different factors, children respond and overcome that adversity in in all different ways. But it's our job as mental health professionals and as foster parents to make sure that we're doing everything we can to support that healing. And so we require our foster parents to be solely focused on that 
that work. So they are full-time professional caregivers. And with that comes a lot of training, clinical supervision, and around-the-clock support from licensed mental health specialists. You know, as a clinical director, part of my role is that I provide emergency on-call support when a child is experiencing safety concerns or, you know, there is an acute risk. So, you know, I want to say that the order is tall, but the support is great. And so for foster parents who join us, they will have the support of a team of a village around them. You know, and if folks listening to the podcast are interested in finding out more about foster parenting, they can certainly check out our website. It's simplysmiles.org. And we are actively recruiting foster parents. We, of course, welcome enthusiastically our native partners who are interested in foster parenting. But if you are not Native, but understand the importance of, you know, the deep respect we have for our Native partners who we work with and and following their lead, and you'd like to find out, you know, how you can help, please, please check it out as well. Because, you know, there's certainly opportunities for non-Native foster caregiving opportunities as well. Wow. Yeah. And I didn't realize that caregivers could be recruited from outside of the Cheyenne River Reservation. So that that's wonderful to know. I'm going to repeat the website, simplysmiles.org. Did I get that right? You did. Yes, absolutely. We welcome applicants from everywhere and anywhere. We really welcome Native applicants, folks who grow, grew up on the Cheyenne River Reservation, uh, folks who are familiar. But certainly, you know, if you have a heart for this work and you understand the importance of the cultural competency piece, we certainly welcome you to to apply. And then, you know, the other side of that is the professional support that we provide. And so it it takes a a lot of people to make a village run. Um, And that community is really crucial and every member is important. And so everyone from clinicians who are providing, you know, individual group and family therapy to program managers who are making sure that our foster parents get the training and the rest and the support that they need to, you know, superintendent and maintenance staff who make sure that when it is freezing and there is a snowstorm (laughs) that, you know, driveways are plowed um, so that kids can get to school or whatever the case may be, you know, it takes a lot of people to make this run well. And so, you know, there might be people who who aren't necessarily interested in providing foster care, but who are interested in providing maybe that relief care or support in a different in a different professional role. And so um, I welcome anyone who who thinks that might be for them to to check out the website as well. Uh, that's amazing. So simplysmiles.org. And then I guess I also just want to ask you for people who based on their location where they live and their lives, they're not able to maybe be a caregiver or um, get immersed in that sort of role. Are there other ways that listeners can support Simply Smiles? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, in checking out our website, you can see, you know, the different ways that you can support our mission you know, monetarily, you know, providing your support, but also just educating yourself on this work and the importance of this work. And I would just also encourage people to, you know, educate yourselves on your own communities. We are all residing on sacred and stolen land. Educate yourselves on the tribes who resided uh, where you now live. Educate yourselves on what your community is doing to recognize the importance of supporting Native communities. 
and you know educate yourselves on on this country's history we all play a role um and i think in in doing that and in being a, an ally an informed ally to, to native people you are supporting the simply smiles vision and mission Super cool. If a listener has a question or would like more information after the podcast airs, is the best place for them to find you on the Simply Smiles website? Is there a contact form or an email address? What's the best way to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So it's really simple. Um, so my name's Hallie. I'm the clinical director. And my email is Hallie at simplysmiles.org. So that's H-A-L-L-I-E at simplysmiles.org. And I would love to talk to anyone who's interested in, in learning more. Awesome. Well, I will link up in the podcast description, both the website and your email address. And I just want to thank you so much for sharing the work that Simply Smiles does. What a great organization, such a cool concept, obviously close to my heart, even just based on proximity to my home state. And I just love the whole idea. So thank you so much for sharing this with us. Oh, my pleasure, Alex. And thank you for the work you do. Grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you. Also, I'd like to give a big, huge shout out to our podcast editor, Ruben Andrews. Big thanks to Ruben. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate if you hopped on to the Purple Podcast app, write a review, tell me what you think. I read every single one of them and I absolutely love it. Consider leaving five stars as well. And Hallie, one last big thanks before we jump off. I hope you have a wonderful day. Stay warm, <laughs> um, stay out of the tundra, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks a lot, Alex. Take care. You too. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.